0: My name is Dwayne Gordon. This podcast is about jazz music, From Spirituals to Swing. I'm going to tell you the story about how jazz music emerged in America and laid the foundation for modern American music. I began to learn of this story when I was a teenager, listening to a record album called From Spirituals to Swing. This was a recording of a Carnegie Hall concert in the 1930s. The purpose of the concert was to showcase live performances of African-American music, including spirituals, blues, ragtime, and jazz. My story will cover that music and more. Jazz music was created in New Orleans at the beginning of the 20th century. Buddy Bolden, a black cornet player, is celebrated as the first person to play jazz. There are no recordings of him. He was not heard outside of New Orleans. What is known of him is from musicians he influenced between 1900 and 1907. In 1907, he suffered a psychotic breakdown and spent the remainder of his life in a psychiatric hospital, passing away in 1931. Basically, Bolden combined two forms of African-American music, ragtime and the blues. His band performed this music on marching band instruments, with a cornet, trombone, and clarinet in the front line. And this may have been the earliest jazz music. Let's listen to a piece of music that I believe may sound close to what Bolden was playing. After Bolden was hospitalized, the band was renamed the Eagle Band, with Frankie Dusen as its leader. Freddie Keppard replaced Bolden on cornet. This is Keppard's 1926 recording of Stockyard Strut. The origin of jazz is found in ragtime and the blues. Ragtime was the first nationally popular music. It was basically marching band music performed on a piano or a guitar with a syncopated rhythm. Syncopation is a surprising accent on the beat. On ragtime piano, the left hand plays a steady beat, while the melody of the right hand accents certain beats, normally the first and third beats. This creates a ragged rhythm that seems to jump around. It's dancing music, and so it's meant for jumping around. The first popular ragtime tune was Maple Leaf Rag, written in 1899 by Scott Joplin, an African-American from Missouri. Joplin had difficulty selling this tune to a publisher because it just sounded so different. Joplin was able to make an arrangement with the publisher in which Joplin got a penny each time the sheet music for Maple Leaf Rag was sold. This was the first arrangement in which royalties were paid for music sales. Let's listen to a little of Maple Leaf Rag performed by a young jazz man Richard Scott. Scott regularly performs at Fritzel's on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. <laughs> ragtime and jazz are dancing music. A major difference is that ragtime follows a written score while jazz is improvised. Improvisation means that the music is created during the performance. There are many ways to express syncopation in jazz. It could be an accent on the upbeat. While tapping your foot, the upbeat is when your foot is in the air. This creates the illusion that the music has moved forward in time. And so we move forward, we dance to catch up. In early jazz, a rhythmic style emerged which used a steady, driving four beat, on top of which the melody instruments, the cornet, the clarinet, and the trombone, would create surprising rhythmic patterns. One instrument played a straight melody, while the others improvised counterpart melodies, jumping on and around the steady beat. The melodies are in conversation with each other. Two or more different melodies playing at the same time is called polyphonic melody. Improvised polyphonic melody came to jazz from the blues. Another feature of jazz that came from the blues is call and response. Call and response refers to musical phrases, one after the other, in which the first phrase, the call, is answered or affirmed by the second phrase. Often the second phrase agrees with the first phrase by repeating the first phrase. This is a musical conversation of shared values. There is normally a third phrase that expresses the result or meaning of the conversation. Let's listen to the call and response and closing phrases in a 1957 recording, Good Morning Blues, featuring my friend the remarkable Barbara Dane on vocal. Features of jazz that I talked about, syncopation or rhythmic surprise, polyphonic melody, call-and-response, and and improvisation are prominent features of traditional African music. Traditional African music is a group experience, not a concert. It's a musical conversation in a circle in which group members participate by improvising with their voices and instruments. Occasionally, some notes are slightly off-pitch. This creates musical tension. In jazz, those slightly flattened notes are called blue notes. In blues, the off-pitch notes are called worry notes. Some notes may start in early or late. This creates momentum. In jazz, those are called swing notes. Jazz is essentially African music that was transformed in America and expressed in the 12 tones, chord structures, and instruments of Western European music. I'll explain that further after we listen to Sidney Machet and Wild Bill Davidson on I Found a New Baby, 1949. Hear the simultaneous different melodies, the straight lead and the improvised counterpart melody, and how they create surprising rhythmic patterns on a straight four-beat song. Listen for call and response. The call is affirmed by repetition and then resolved by a third phrase. Feel the spontaneity that comes from improvisation. slaves brought their musical culture to Jamestown in 1619, and over 300 years adapted it to the unique and difficult circumstances in America. Slaves owned nothing. They were property, and so they were bought and sold, often with no regard to keeping families together. They knew nothing of the world outside of their home plantation. Generally, outside of New Orleans, slaves were not allowed to congregate, sing, or make music. This began to change in the 1730s, during a period of significant Christian revivalism in America known as the Great Awakening. This movement emphasized the need for ordinary people to make a personal connection with God, rather than having that connection be made through a minister. Incidentally at that time, Europe was experiencing the Great Enlightenment. This emphasized science and philosophy. These differing ideologies began to influence America's movement towards the Revolutionary War. Many slaves were forced to convert to Christianity, and for the slaves, accepting Christianity became part of accepting America as home. Certainly, the slaves could relate their circumstances to biblical stories of the Israelites in bondage. Christian revivalists moved through the South and preached that everyone was spiritually equal, this led to a tolerance by slave masters for slaves to gather for religious meetings and to sing. The slaves sang while they worked. It was found to increase production. This singing was called field hollering. Prison work songs are believed to be similar to field hollers. They both use a call-in and response and a vocal style that is tense and wavy. Surprisingly, these features are also present in the Islamic call to prayer, The adhan as the adhan is called from the mosque as it is five times a day there is a pause after each phrase so that listeners can silently repeat the phrase this is call and response let's listen to the tense wavy vocal style in a phrase from the adhan followed by the beginning of levy camp holler recorded at the mississippi state prison in 1946.
1: Oh,
2: Lord, I woke up this morning, man, I was feeling bad.
0: In the 7th century, Mohammed freed an African slave named Bilal and made him the first Adhan caller. It's estimated that up to 30% of the Africans brought to America as slaves were Muslim. Field hollers produced plantation songs and evolved into spirituals. Spirituals are religious folk songs created by African Americans that express hope for better times, possibly freedom. Let's listen to a 1959 recording of what is believed to be similar to a very early spiritual. Musicologists discovered this song in the 1930s on a rather isolated island off of Georgia. The same song was found in the Bahamas. It's believed that royalist slave masters from Georgia Island took their slaves in this song to the Bahamas to escape the Revolutionary War.
1: Moses Moses, don't you let King Pharaoh overtake you, Moses, Moses.
0: Michael Row the Boat Ashore was first written down in 1862 on St. Helena Island, off of South Carolina. Slave masters abandoned the island to escape the Union Navy, leaving their slaves behind. A Harvard professor was sent there to look after things and heard the African-American islanders singing Michael Row the Boat Ashore. Spiritual music is the only American folk music. It's the only music that's been passed down across the country orally for generations the blues began to develop as a musical form in the south after the civil war the blues is basically spiritual music that is performed not by a group but by an individual the voice of the blues is singular alone and secular whereas the context of spirituals is god let us go the blues is mister let me be after the civil war Many former slaves continued to work on plantations as sharecroppers. A number of Southern blacks sought to earn a living making music. The route to better paying gigs was on the Mississippi River to red-light districts in New Orleans, Memphis, and St. Louis. In 1903, W.C. Handy, a Black American bandleader and composer, was dozing on a train platform in Tutwiler, Mississippi. Another Black man on the platform was playing a guitar, Fretting the strings with a pocket knife, to Handy it was the weirdest music he had ever heard. Let's listen to a bit from a remarkable blues song. Dark was the night, cold was the ground. This is a 1927 field recording of Blind Willie Johnson, a Louisiana street singer. The melodic conversation involves just a guitar and a voice, so personal and alone that words are not necessary. Thank you. 1914, Handy would compose St. Louis Blues, the most recorded song of the 20th century after Silent Night. Before composing the blues, Handy was a bandleader in minstrel shows. Minstrelsy in the 1800s was the first nationally popular American entertainment. It was during this period that national interest grew in African American music, and this was important to the emergence of jazz. Minstrel shows were basically variety shows with music and comedy. Minstrelsy also featured comedic interpretations of African-American culture and music. White entertainers and blackface would act like fools and sing plantation songs. An early blackface entertainer from New York, Thomas Rice, had a world-famous act in which he portrayed a bungling slave named Jim Crow. While minstrelsy seems unconscionable today, it reflected a fascination with African-Americans by people who had, for the most part, no prior experience with African-American culture or slavery. Stephen Foster, the most famous American composer of the 19th century, was in the South once, during his honeymoon, a year after he wrote Old Folks at Home in 1851. It's a minstrel song about a slave that refers to the Suwannee River. Foster's brother picked the name Swanee River from a map of Florida for its rhyming quality. By mid century, African American music began to gain critical appreciation as a new and extraordinary type of music. In 1867, the first collection of slave songs was published. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot was written by a slave prior to the Civil War. In 1872, the all-black Fisk University Jubilee Singers sang it at the White House for President Grant. Next year, they sang to Queen Victoria. They were at the New Theater in San Francisco in 1876. Let's listen to a 1915 recording of the Fisk University Jubilee Singers. I'm going down to the river of gold.
1: Summerly Say, hallelujah! I'm going down to the river of the island! I'm going
0: down to the river of the island, Say! Near the end of the 1800s, many professional black musicians came into prominence through minstrel shows. This included Jelly Roll Morton from New Orleans. He was the first person to arrange and publish jazz compositions. Bessie Smith, the Empress of the Blues, performed in minstrel shows. Now let's return to New Orleans. New Orleans had and still has an incredibly vibrant music scene. They have parades with brass bands for every Catholic holiday and community events and weddings and funerals. There is music in the streets every day. In the early 20th century, Black musicians migrating from the South found work in Uptown, New Orleans, where brass bands were playing a new, ragged, improvised dance music. The Southern blacks brought elements of the blues and spirituals to this music. The Uptown bands competed with the Downtown bands, which were dominated by creoles of color. These were mixed-race blacks whose families had been free for generations or who had never been enslaved. The Creole musicians were classically trained. They studied opera, and they were in the city's best orchestras. The uptown bands were wildly popular and got most of the jobs. And so the Creole musicians started playing this new, improvised, ragged, bluesy music. And the Creoles brought classical and operatic styles to jazz. Jazz evolved quickly in large part because it's improvised. Anyone who's ever played jazz has contributed his or her own musical ideas and background to the music. By 1915, jazz music began to emerge in other cities. It found its way up the Mississippi on riverboat dance parties that would dock in port cities. Some New Orleans jazz players were at the 1915 World's Fair in San Francisco. In 1917, the first jazz record, "Livery Stable Blues, was made by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, five white musicians from New Orleans. That year, Storyville, the red-light district of New Orleans, closed. Many New Orleans jazz players left for better opportunities in other cities. Jelly Roll Morton moved to Los Angeles, and then briefly to San Francisco, where he opened the Jupiter Club. King Oliver, a cornetist who had been in Buddy Bolden's band, was in Oakland for a few months in 1921. Many jazz musicians moved to Chicago. Chicago was brand new. It was entirely rebuilt after its great fire in 1871. World War I halted immigration from Europe, and workers were needed. Chicago opened its factory doors to blacks, and so began the great migration of black Americans from the South to Chicago. The need for entertainment in Chicago was great. Two things happened in 1920 that changed the nature of Chicago's entertainment. Prohibition was enacted, and Al Capone arrived from New York to help his mentor, Johnny Torrio, in managing the South Side's criminal enterprise known as The Outfit. Al Capone loved jazz music, and it mixed perfectly with bootleg liquor, gambling, and prostitution. The Marigold Gardens Cafe was a popular Chicago nightclub and gangster hangout. Moe the Gimp, a kidnapper and murderer, was a regular. The Marigold had the largest outdoor wooden dance floor in the city and was home base to one of the city's most popular dance bands, the Benson Orchestra of Chicago. Let's listen to their version of Copenhagen, 1924. This is what you would have heard walking into a Chicago speakeasy in the Roaring Twenties. My dad's uncle, Walt Foster, is on the drums. I don't think any city ever employed as many musicians as Chicago did in the 1920s. King Oliver led the hottest jazz band in Chicago, performing at the Lincoln Gardens Cafe in a southside neighborhood known as Bronzeville. In 1922, 21-year-old Louis Armstrong from New Orleans joined Oliver's band and quickly became the most popular jazz player in town. Between 1925 and 1928, Armstrong recorded 50 songs with bands he named the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens. These recordings changed jazz and laid the foundation for modern music. The recordings feature improvised solos in which Armstrong plays the lead melody and his own improvised counterpart melody in conversation with each other. Armstrong was able to spontaneously express what he was feeling with his horn, which he played like a voice and with his voice, which he sang like a horn. The listener is drawn into the conversation and can feel what Armstrong is expressing. Every musician or singer who has improvised a solo after 1928 is following Armstrong. I've digitized many audio tapes from my friend Richard Hadlock. These include recordings of his interviews with jazz musicians. This is an excerpt from one of those interviews. It's January 17th. 1962. We're at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco with Louis Armstrong.
1: But I tell you, there's, there's something lasting, uh, something that's still important in your style that I think was in Bessie's. And uh, I think that maybe some of the youngsters are just starting to think about this again. And that's this singing on the, on the horn or yeah. uh, playing,
2: playing like a singer would
1: give that it a song.
2: Full value, full value to each note. And, That's uh, it. That's all you need in music. And I, I always uh, felt that way even when I was singing a little quartet. And uh, even if I put the horn down, there'll always be some spot where I can jive up a little living uh, seven, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or just play, be around music, yeah. you know, because I'll never change. Mm-hmm. Na, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. that's jazz Yeah. see that's the way I look at it anything you can express to the public is jazz
0: anything you can express to the public is jazz the expression of jazz is spontaneous and personal my dad was once a guest on Richard's radio program my dad passed away about 20 years ago but we can go back to a nineteen ninety three recording and listen to Richard and my dad, Jim Gordon, discussing Louis Armstrong's records.
1: Does it ever strike you the way it does me, Jim, that uh, there aren't that many people who who have improved on Louis Armstrong's playing in
2: nineteen twenty eight? I I agree with you, Dick. Uh, one thing about these records, uh, I always felt uh, after an evening of playing these hot fives and hot sevens. I get the feeling there's nothing else to play. Yeah, I mean it's so
1: definitive, isn't it? Yeah, the way he puts really. it out, it's just marvelous.
0: You just can't top them. In 1977, NASA launched two probes into space, Voyagers 1 and 2, to investigate our solar system's outer planets, then continue into outer space. Each probe contains a gold record with greetings from Earth in 55 languages and music from around the world. The probes are now 14 billion miles away, approaching interstellar space, the space between stars. The onboard records serve to express who we are, the human race, to intelligent alien life if they're out there and they get a hold of these records. A suitable cartridge, needle, and instructions are provided. There are four tracks on that record representing the United States. Let's listen to track 18 on side B, Melancholy Blues. Recorded by Louis Armstrong in the Hot Sevens in 1927. Wonderful trombone work on that record is by Kid Ori from New Orleans. Ori was the first important jazz trombonist of any color. Ori's band came to Los Angeles in 1921 to become the first black band to record a jazz record. Dark was the night, cold was the ground. Is track 31 on side B of that outer space record? Every night on planet Earth, there are people who spend a dark night on the cold ground. Incidentally. The other two musical selections from the USA on the Voyager record are Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry and A Navajo Night Chant by the First Americans. I have to mention another jazz player from the 20s or my father would not approve of this presentation. He is Bix Spiderback, a white cornet player from Davenport, Iowa. He was one of the most influential jazz soloists of the 20th century was largely unknown to the public when he died in 1931 at age 28. He is still largely unknown by the public. I learned about Bix in 1972 when my dad took me to the first Bix Biderback Festival in Davenport, Iowa. Bix's lyrical style and pure bell-like tone became a feature of later, smoother swing music. Armstrong expressed himself powerfully and took no prisoners. Bix's sound seemed to emerge from nature. From which we cannot escape. Let's listen to Bix on Singing the Blues,
1: 1927. (laughs)
0: stock market crashed in 1929. The country fell into a deep economic depression, and many people faced the prospect of a dark night on the cold ground. Most record companies folded. Prohibition ended, and Capone went to prison. My dad's uncle got a job as a salesman. The jazz age had come to an end. Jazz evolved from the experience of African Americans over a period of 300 years. Fundamentally, it is a mixture of ragtime and the blues. Syncopation, surprising accents on the beat, came from ragtime. Different melodies playing at the same time in an improvised call and response pattern came from the blues. The blues emerged from spiritual music, which arose from field hollers. Jazz became America's first modern music. It expressed the collective shared values of diverse individuals contributing to a common cause. It was music by the people, for the people, an artistic expression of democracy. The decade of the 1930s was the golden age of radio. By 1934, radio had become the primary source of entertainment for most Americans. With radio, most people across the country could hear the same version of a popular song by a popular entertainer in the same day. One of the most popular entertainers of the early 1930s was Bing Crosby. The second most popular song of 1932 was Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? It's about a World War I veteran standing in a breadline, abandoned by society. The title lyric addresses fellow Americans, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? The tone is despairing but hopeful. Then it grows defiant. It becomes, Buddy, Can You Spare a Dime? now directed to half a million other vets who don't have a dime. Together, they were once powerful and built bridges and towers and railroads and slogged through hell. The implication is clear. Together, they could rise up against the system that betrayed them. The song was considered by Republicans to be anti-capitalist propaganda. Attempts were made to ban it from the radio. Let's listen to a little of Bing Crosby's version, 1932's most popular song.
2: Once in khaki suits Ah gee, we looked swell Full of that Yankee doodly-dum Half a million boots Went slugging through hell And I was the kid with a drum Oh say, don't you remember They called me Al It was Al all the time don't you remember I'm your pal buddy can you spare a dime?
0: the depression forced many jazz bands out of business but there were still hundreds of jazz bands and every large city outside of the deep south had notable jazz bands performing in ballrooms hotels and theaters often broadcast live on the radio jazz bands were also featured in the new talking movies jazz bands got larger with at least 10 musicians and this big band music needed to be planned out or arranged in advance with little improvisation by band members the improvised polyphony of the jazz age the different simultaneous melodies in conversation with each other became a single improvised melody accompanied by an arranged, supporting musical pattern. A single dominant melody with a supporting musical background is called homophony. Most Western music is homophonic. In this respect, jazz became more mainstream and pop-friendly. A popular big band dance leader of the 1930s was Paul Whiteman. Whiteman's was a superior band with some of the most technically skilled musicians of the time, Including Big Spiderback. The media crowned this white band leader as the king of jazz. One of my dad's prized possessions was a ring that Whiteman gave to each of his band members. Whiteman formally arranged for an orchestra the musical parts that would normally be improvised in jazz music. Eddie Condon, a leading jazzman of the 20th century, criticized Whiteman for trying to make a lady out of jazz. Nevertheless, whiteman was popular and his style of jazz was the first jazz that many americans heard at the beginning of the golden age of radio let's listen to a part of whiteman's 1932 version of willow weep for me
2: Listen, Willow, and weep for me.
0: On August 21st, 1935, 26 year old Benny Goodman, a white clarinetist from Chicago, and his band began a three week engagement at the Palomar Ballroom in Los Angeles. The band had just come off of a three month national tour with mixed results. Two days earlier, They performed with great success to a sold-out crowd at McFadden's Ballroom in Oakland. The next night, they disappointed their audience in Pismo Beach. The Polymer Ballroom had the largest dance floor on the West Coast. Thousands of young people came to hear Benny Goodman. They heard it would be an exciting show. Many more across the country tuned in their radios for a live broadcast. Goodman opened the show playing the mainstream music he thought everyone wanted to hear and faced the disappointment he was becoming familiar with. After the first set, Goodman decided that if the band was going to fail, they might as well fail playing music they wanted to play. Goodman pulled down some big band arrangements he bought from Fletcher Henderson, an African-American band leader in New York, and the band took off. So did the audience. They roared, and a thousand of them rushed to the bandstand. Music history marks Goodman's 1935 performance at the Palomar Ballroom as the beginning of the swing music era. African-American band leaders, Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, and others, were already leading swing bands in New York, but Goodman's radio concert show first introduced millions of white teenagers to this music. Swing music came to define mass youth culture. It is the most popular of all forms of jazz music. Despite its deep roots in African-American music, the public and press crowned a white man, Benny Goodman, as the King of Swing. Three years later, on January 16, 1938, Goodman became the first jazz bandleader to perform at Carnegie Hall. That show is regarded as the single most important jazz or popular music concert in history, a coming out party for modern music, jazz. Going into the opening number, Goodman was unsure about how his music would be received by a Carnegie Hall audience of nearly 3,000. Let's listen to a recording of that show's opening number, Don't Be That Way. Under the improvised soloing instrument, there's an arranged call-and-response pattern, a musical conversation between the reeds and the horns. Benny Goodman's brother-in-law was John Hammond, a wealthy record producer and civil rights activist. Hammond introduced Goodman to Fletcher Henderson, from whom Goodman bought the swing arrangements. He persuaded Goodman to hire black musicians, such as Charlie Christian, a guitarist, and Teddy Wilson, a pianist. In 1933, Hammond arranged for 18-year-old Billie Holiday to make her recording debut with Benny Goodman. Billie Holiday became one of the most influential singers of the 20th century. Like Louis Armstrong, she sang like a jazz instrumentalist and poured deep emotion into the melody. The saxophonist Lester Young nicknamed her Lady Day. In Christianity, Lady Day commemorates Archangel Gabriel's visit to the Virgin Mary with news of her pending motherhood. Holiday gave the nickname Prez to Lester Young, referring to Franklin Roosevelt. The Greatest Man Around. Let's listen to Billie Holiday's first popular record, What a Little Moonlight Can Do, 1935. This recording was intended for play on jukeboxes, which were then becoming popular across the country. Juke is slang for dancing. A bar or diner with a jukebox and a small open floor was known as a juke joint. Back then, hit record charts were based not on radio play, but on the number of jukebox plays. This one was a hit.
2: Word. I love you. Ooh, what little moonlight can do.
1: Wait a while till little moonbeam comes.
0: In 1938, John Hammond organized the Spirituals to Swing Concert at Carnegie Hall. The goal of that concert was to showcase African American music from its origins up to modern big band swing. The concert featured both white and black musicians, performing for a white and black audience. The integration of blacks and whites on and off stage at that time was rare and controversial. It was a milestone in the history of both American music and democracy. The Carnegie Hall show sold out and was hugely successful. The concert brought two emerging forms of African-American music to national attention. These were Gospel and Boogie Woogie. Sister Rosetta Tharp, an African-American gospel singer and guitar player from Arkansas, performed Let's Rock. She originated pop gospel in 1938. She took spiritual music, the music of light, into the darkness that is, nightclubs and concert halls, performing with jazz bands and blues artists. In 1942, Billboard magazine used the term rock and roll to describe her music. Let's listen to her 1944 version of Strange Things Happen Every Day. Listen to her powerful vocal and spirited guitar playing, both fundamental to rock and roll.
1: If you want to view the crime, you must learn to quit your line there are strange things happening every day
2: If you hew right to the line, you can live right all the time
0: Sister Rosetta Tharpe became known as the godmother of rock and roll. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. The other form of music that gained attention at the Carnegie Hall concert was Boogie Woogie, performed by Big Joe Turner, an African American from Kansas City, Missouri. He would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987. Boogie Woogie originated in African American communities in northeastern Texas in the 1870s near the hub of the Texas and Pacific Railway Company. The rattling and whistling of the new steam locomotives dominated the oral environment, influencing the music and representing freedom, pathways out of the Deep South from which the music migrated. Boogie Woogie is basically standard 12-bar blues that is played fast, often 8 beats to the bar, with a repeating bass line, the rhythm of a freight train. Let's listen to Big Joe Turner on Roland Peak, this 1938 recording is regarded as one of the most important precursors of rock and roll. I've got
2: to get a gal lives up on that hill. I've got to get a gal lives up on that hill. When he fools try to quit me, Lord, but I love her dear. Shine like God, like she shine like line I go. Got eyes like down, she shine like line I go. Every time she loves me, she sends my mellow soul. You so beautiful, but you got died someday. Well, you so beautiful, but you got died someday. All I want is a love and thank you before you pass away. Roll it, boy, let him jump for joy.
0: The first rock and roll record is considered to be Jackie Brenston's 1951 recording of Rocket 88. The song praised the Model 88 Oldsmobile with a 303 cubic inch engine known as the Rocket Motor. The Rocket 88 was the first production muscle car, a small car with a big engine. The car was popular with young World War II vets with experience operating powerful military machines and equipment. Jackie Brinston was an African-American saxophonist from Clarksdale, Mississippi. B.B. King heard Brinston performing with Ike Turner's band, The Rhythm Kings, and got them a recording session with record producer Sam Phillips in Memphis, Tennessee. Rocket 88 was one of the songs they recorded. Rocket 88 was considered rhythm and blues, or R&B. This genre of music emerged from the combining of gospel and boogie-woogie. Rocket 88 is distinguished from other R&B songs of the time by the sound of an overdriven, distorted guitar amplifier. There's a story behind that. Princeton and the band drove to the studio from Mississippi to Memphis on Highway 61. Along the way, they had a flat tire. While emptying the trunk to get to the spare tire, they damaged the speaker cone of their guitar amplifier. The damage caused a fuzzy, distorted guitar sound distortion in music conveys a feeling of being out of control. This is the wild essential ingredient of rock and roll. Let's listen to a little of Rocket 88.
2: Heard of Jalopith, you heard the noise they make But let me introduce my new Rocket 88 Yes, it's straight, just one way Everybody likes my Rocket 88 Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along
0: Fundamentally, there are three creative actions that can be taken in science or art. These actions are bending, breaking, or blending. Jazz is an art form that differed significantly from previous music because it relied on the unique improvisational participation of group members. Improvisation naturally bent, broke, or blended the music. In the early 1940s, some swing band musicians in New York would finish their evening shows and then get together to jam and nightclubs, notably Minton's Playhouse in Harlem. These talented musicians, such as Dizzy Gillespie, Ben Webster, and Charlie Parker would experiment with the music and test each other's technical abilities by playing incredibly fast and improvising difficult notes and complex chords. As I've mentioned, jazz music can be thought of as a musical conversation between musicians and between musicians and dancers. This new music was a technical conversation between musicians. Its audience did not dance, they listened. This was bebop music. Let's listen to the Dizzy Gillespie Sextet's 1945 recording of Dizzy Atmosphere. Charlie Parker is on alto sax. Virtually all genres of popular American music over the last 100 years resulted from the combining, separating, and recombining of music that began with America's first modern music, jazz. In the 1920s, country musicians adapted a boogie-woogie style and created western swing. Traditional ballads from England, Scotland, and Ireland combined with jazz elements to produce bluegrass in the 1940s. The improvised soloing with the counterpart melody and bluegrass is known as a breakdown. Western swing would combine with rhythm and blues in the 1950s to create rockabilly, as performed by Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, and others. Soul music emerged in the 1950s, combining gospel, rhythm and blues, and jazz. In the 1960s, funk was blended from rock, jazz, and rhythm and blues. Hip hop is the most popular music in the world today. It originated at block parties popular with African American, Caribbean, and Latino youth in the Bronx neighborhoods of New York City in the 1970s. A hip hop originator was Clive Campbell, a Jamaican American known as DJ Cool Herc. He was nicknamed Herc because of his Herculean physique. In August 1973, His sister, Cindy, wanted to raise some money to buy new clothes before the school year began. So she threw a block party on August 11th in the recreation room of the 100-unit apartment they lived in and charged admission. 50 cents for fellows, 25 cents for ladies. She billed her 16-year-old brother, DJ Cool Herc, and his record collection as the main attraction. 300 people attended the party. The music they heard was the blueprint for hip-hop. Using two turntables with copies of the same record on each, Kool Herc would extend the instrumental part of the song that emphasized the drum beat. This is known as the break. Going back and forth between the turntables, he would create what he called a five-minute loop of fury. This prolonged percussive beat energized the dancers. Kool Herc would spur them on By calling out slang phrases such as, rock on my mellow, or b-boys, b-girls, are you ready? The B stood for break, and the dance style that emerged from this music was breakdancing. The slang pronouncement sent to rhyming became known as rap music. No one had heard of DJ Cool Herc before that party. The next day he was famous across the Bronx. Today he's known as the architect of a new form of modern American music. A groundbreaking feature of early hip-hop was the remarkable degree of musical excitement and personal expression that could be generated by a single skilled individual, a DJ, with a couple of turntables, a microphone, amplifiers, and speakers. Over the last 40 years, hip-hop artists quite literally blended modern musical genres using turntables, tapes, or electronic files. Let's listen to a contemporary hip-hop hit. Roxanne by Arizona Cervas. The supporting musical pattern is built from layers of electronic recorded sounds known as samples. 100 years after the jazz age, the expression is still personal and characterized by spontaneity, syncopation, and call and response.
2: Roxanne, Roxanne All she to do is party all night. Ay, at a party in the hills, yeah. Ay, She just wanna Shorty drive a poodle with no top But if I throw this money, she gon' drop She don't wait in lines if it's too long She don't drive the whip. She laugh at you, uh, Malibu. Uh, Malibu, Spending daddy's money with attitude to do is party all night.
0: The attitude of hip-hop music is boastful, narcissistic, and rebellious. It is the Jungian expression of the animus, independent, passionately self-centered, young and powerful. It is the music of a young and powerful country, a musical expression first heard around the world at the dawn of modern music, the 1920s, the Jazz Age. Fundamentally, modern American music features a unique expression of self and community that was brought to America from Africa. It was molded by the oppression of slavery and then amplified in the language, tones, and instruments brought to America from Europe. Such a profound blending of diverse cultures European and African created something new the modern American and American music. The theme of modern music is as old as mythology. Central to the myths is the individual hero who sacrifices his or her own ego to reveal the true value of self. By example, the hero expresses the truth of personal value in each of us. We all grow up around something And what we learn from that is worth expressing to the public. In modern music, the hero is the improvising musician, expressing a personal emotion that is drawn from within. The group draws the same emotion and celebrates the value of personal self-expression with counterpart melodies and -and call-and-response patterns and dancing. Music and art express who we are. Fundamentally, we're all in this together. We're all responsible for each other. This concludes my podcast on the emergence of jazz and modern American music. I hope that it was enjoyable and meaningful to you. Thank you for listening, and take good care of yourselves and each other.